Welcome to the new CyberWare podcast series at Minnesota State University, Mankato. I'm your host, Sharon Bethello, along with my fantastic co-host, Raj Manander. We're both student IT cybersecurity analysts working at IT Solutions on campus. This podcast series was created to help students become more cyberware in their day-to-day activities. This podcast series will feature various guests that know their way around the cybersecurity industry. Our first guest for today is Dr. Velsos, also sometimes referred to as Dr. Wheat. He is a well-known information security professor here at Minnesota State University, Mankato. He writes security articles for IBM additionally, as well as keeping the world informed through his Twitter account. His moniker is Dr. InfoSec. Thank you for listening in with us. Let's get started. All right, Dr. Velsos, did you want to start off with an introduction of yourself? Well, hello, Sherwin, and hello, Raj. Thank you for having me on the, on the show. Um, yes, Chris Valsos, uh, I've been uh, at MSU, Minnesota State University, Mankato, since uh, 1998, initially teaching um, networking and software engineering-related courses, and then since the mid-2000s, uh, created uh, the cybersecurity-related courses we have here at the university as well as uh, created an online master's degree program specifically in cyber risk management. All right. Thank you, Dr. V. Today, we'll be talking about the two of the four Ps. These are some of the guidelines that we have in general at ITS. The first P is related to phishing. And we'll, we'll be talking about what exactly phishing is and possibly talk into some examples of phishing. So phishing primarily is an email that is sent to a user to try and get data or try and get information from the user and is specifically targeting that individual. So you can get sent uh, in an email where a lot of personally identifiable information can be taken, like credit card information or contact information. There's a lot of things that users need to be wary about when looking at such emails. Do you have any examples or anything to further talk about, Raj, on phishing? Yeah, um, so most of the common phishing emails, I'd say, as working as a student analyst for IT security, I've seen is that the emails say, hey, your account is logged, try to activate it, and they impersonate uh, Office 365 so that they look a little more legitimate than they are. Um, another one pretty common is they ask you to buy gift cards saying, hey, I'm in a meeting and it's urgent. I can't talk to you right now. Just contact me via email. And they just ask you to buy a bunch of gift cards and stuff like that. The one that I've been seeing due to the pandemic right now is earn from working at home. And this is kind of a major issue because a lot of people who have been unemployed might even fall for these kind of phishing attacks. Do you have anything that you would like to add to this, Dr. Velsos? Um, so phishing is not something new. Um, phishing was around well before the coronavirus. Um, what's What's been different is the number of folks that are working from home and therefore you don't have your usual colleagues uh, sitting next to you or just down the hallway from you. Um, and so we don't have those standard mechanisms of, you know, being able to just kind of look up or just take a stroll down the hallway and ask if somebody else received the same email 
Um, if it's something that looks a little fishy or uh, to double check, you know, did you really send this to me? And the other thing we don't have, uh, or at least it's going to be a little bit more challenging, is just picking up the phone and uh, calling in the standard standard helpline um, that usually uh, sends uh uh, instances or reports of uh, suspicious uh, emails to um, a help desk. So now in the case of MSU Mankato, we might still have this and I'm hoping that the two of you will, will shed some light on this. Uh, just remember if you get some kind of message that you did not initiate that has an urgency and whether it's COVID-19 related or something else and wants you to do something that just appears to be, even if it's just a little bit out of the ordinary, just kind of hit the pause button, think about it, let the, um, the adrenaline rush kind of subside and then come back to it perhaps later on the same day or the next day. In the meantime, uh, follow the instructions for your organization or your school in terms of how to report something suspicious. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a common thing that everybody does when they rush into work is, you know, just skim through emails and don't do the pause as Dr. also just mentioned. And it's very important to just pause and take a look at what the email actually signifies and take any further action or not. Yeah, especially in our organization, uh, Dr. Velsos, and yeah, I agree with you, Raj. The, the kind of phishing emails that we see are targeting both students and, and staff members primarily. We do get a few that target even faculty members, but a lot more in terms of the ratios, a lot more are directed to staff. Um, primarily trying to extract some sort of, you know, key critical information in, in regards to payroll or credit card, you know, information, stuff like that. And a lot of people, especially in the workplace, I feel they just simply skim over emails. They don't really take the time to look at the emails as a whole. There are some key, key factors that you can do to really address phishing. Primarily what we've observed, and, and Raj, you can pro possibly chime in on this, We've seen for most phishing emails, there's always some sort of grammatical or spelling error. You know, the first or primary indication would typically be from the email address itself, from the sender address. You can definitely tell if a phishing email is phishing or not based on, on that one thing. So Raj, do you have any further words to say on that? I think the general email that is phishing definitely is the email address. You check the email address, what it's being sent from, the spelling errors, and then any sort of links or attachments that you're unaware of. And sometimes they even impersonate um, a staff member or a faculty member from the university to kind of get more attention on the user. That, that brings up a, a good point, Raj. And, and that reminds me of uh, some emails I got uh, probably about to somewhere in the past six months, mm -hmm. um, that the, the attackers had done their homework in terms of finding out the name of my boss, in this case, the boss being the dean for a faculty member, and yep. uh, managing to send a message pretending to come from the dean saying, hey, I need your help with something, um, and then can you act on this pretty quickly? And now, you know, first of all, I was lucky enough to pay enough attention to this message or to not reply to it right away and to realize that it was um, probably a scam. Uh, but we did hear reports of some people uh, perhaps going, going out and buying some kind of gift cards and sending those gift card numbers back in. So it is 
attackers always change their game and up their game when they need to. So um, simply looking for the traditional telltale signs. Again, if something comes in from your boss, has your boss sent you a similar email before uh, mm -hmm. or made a similar request before? And if the answer is no, uh, try to use a separate channel not the same channel that the uh, communication came in. So if the communication came in via email, pick up the phone or use your uh, organizational chat uh, feature, perhaps Microsoft Teams, and send this person a quick uh, sideways uh, message uh, just asking for verification and validation that this is indeed a legitimate request. Yeah, that, that's a great point, Dr. Velsos. We definitely have seen a lot of attackers and adversaries shifting their practices over time, especially, you know, right now, in the, given the current situation, they're definitely catering their attacks to very uh, select audience. And they're, they're really focusing on some key elements that we're seeing that are typically different from traditional phishing emails that are, have been sent to us. Yeah, I mean, I just received four emails with kind of just the same topic saying, hey, take the survey and then earn some amount of money just by staying at home. And I think that is probably one of the examples during this pandemic that might be a little more common. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and for our listeners out there that aren't aware of how we report phishing to the system, there there's a whole guide online at mnsu.edu uh, if you just search in the keyword and the search field with the tag phishing. But one of the quickest ways is to just send it directly to us and we at IT security will take a look at the phishing email. And that would be uh, spam, S-P-A-M at mnsu.edu. So if you send that to that email address, we will receive it and definitely review it. So can you also give some examples of steps that the organization has taken after receiving um, uh notices that spam is going on to help protect the rest of the users that haven't checked their emails yet? One of the big steps that we've taken at ITS is to try and engage students with cyberware. So cyber awareness is key, especially in security realm, because that really helps when, when users are more aware, they definitely look more into the email and they definitely, they don't just skim over it, but they really scan it through. Apart from that, we've had a whole suite of countermeasures that have been introduced. Um, we have Office 365 Reporting, uh, which is a one-click software in Outlook where you can click it and it directly marks the email as phishing and the whole email gets screened through Microsoft. And it's a great system that we're using. The only downfall to that currently that we're still trying to address is when you hit the report button, we don't get a copy of it locally on our end. It gets sent straight to the state office. And so they, they maintain all the oversight when it comes to that tool. And we don't have much of an inside look into things. And so when we urge our users to, to report the spam message, we typically tell them to report it via the Office 365 reporting and to also send us a copy, uh, but as an attachment. And, and so then that helps the organization make sure that um, you can take steps to remove that uh, suspicious emails from other inboxes before people have a chance to fall for it, right? Right. Yeah. Microsoft has done a phenomenal job on tracking phishing and it helps the more emails that are sent to the system, it basically scans through it and filters and looks for keywords and patterns in other emails and then uh, helps prevent those even when they're directly sent to the user itself. 
So it will warn and notify users, especially when there's a link saying, oh, this link has been classified as malicious, proceed at your own risk. Yeah, and we also kind of respond back to the users pretty quick with also a message saying that, hey, just spread this with your colleagues or friends so that they don't fall on the scam or phishing trend as well. Now, Dr. Velsos, we had a couple of questions that were asked from a bunch of students and staff members. One of the first, and, and this is more along the lines of industry, from your perspective, how have you seen um, phishing evolve or even increase due to the whole pandemic situation that we have going on? Well, attackers know that there's a lot more people working from home. Um, again, that people don't have their, their usual workmates next to them. And that we're also more, in a way, on edge. And, you know, on edge might mean that we're more alert, but at the same time, we're more concerned. There's a lot more uh, mental stress going on with working from home, making sure your, your system is working. Uh, some, some of it might just be troubleshooting by yourself. And because of this disruption, we're more likely to end up falling for one of these traps. So uh, I've, I, I, I track uh, cybersecurity news and, and I follow many cybersecurity leaders. And one of the common themes has been COVID-19 information related phishing emails. And so uh, under the guise of trying to provide more information or trying to tell you that you can take advantage of some kind of special work uh, benefit or perhaps an employment benefit or, you know, work from home and get an extra day off, uh, the attackers are changing their approach to leverage the sense of urgency, immediacy, and then Frankly, getting our attention, simply mentioning coronavirus or mentioning COVID-19 is much more likely to get our attention than saying something about some kind of uh, vacation or some kind of spreadsheet to that, at least right now. The other topic that's in the news since we're recording this and we're in April is, of course, uh, tax season. And um, again, attackers know that uh, mentioning taxes, tax cuts, mentioning IRS, uh, perhaps telling us that our tax uh, filing was returned or something like this is likely to get us to, again, kind of lower our normal resistance to uh, falling for these kinds of scams and trick us into either clicking a link or opening some kind of attachment or perhaps going and fetching some kind of uh, uh, gift card and sending the numbers through. Right. And we've definitely noticed that as well on our end when it comes to those sort of phishing emails. We haven't noticed specifically in, in regards to you know the tax season currently, but it's kind of I find it kind of crazy and strange that attackers would still try and exploit you know, these vulnerabilities in people, especially when we're at such a, a state in the world when you know there's such a big crisis going on. It's pretty scary and alarming at the same time. Yeah, so it would, it would be nice if attackers could take a break um, for the next <laughs> couple of months until all this dies down. Uh, unfortunately, we've seen it uh, just from the past month or two, uh, at least in the U.S. perspective. Uh, we've seen ramping up of attacks and, again, changing the creative aspects of the uh, the incoming messaging. Um, and, and I know that there's some other really, uh, really useful and, and interesting topics coming up connected to... Uh, uh, to remote working, mm -hmm. but uh, stay vigilant. And if an email is trying to get you to act right now, perhaps the best thing you can do is to be contrarian and decide to not touch it for the next uh, few minutes or few hours. 
Yeah, thanks for that, Dr. V. We had a couple of questions as well from some of the students as well. Uh, in regards to fishing, uh, can you offer any more tips that can help students be more cyber aware and how they can implement these strategies into their everyday routine? So you, you've hit already on, on a whack, actually all three of us have hit on, on a few of those already. Uh, one being to look out for uh, a strange uh, source or destination, uh, some strange language, uh, perhaps even some grammatical errors. Although I've seen some that are so good that it's very, very hard to dis distinguish between a legitimate email versus one that actually took a copy of the legitimate email and then kind of changed the link, for example, or changed perhaps a phone number or uh, changed just a small uh, piece of that message, uh, just big enough for the attacker to get some kind of benefit out of this. Um, so. And the other, uh, the other main thing that we've we've said is to be alert. And so think about when you get an incoming communication. Did you expect this? And if you didn't expect this, if it's out of the blue, what are they asking you to do? And the more pressure there is on you, in terms of you, you have to act now. The more, uh, the stronger the resistance should be on your part. Uh, if um, and then if you have a way to double check with this. Uh, this third party, basically, if you have another way to ch double check with them via text, via phone call, via whatever, WhatsApp, um, perhaps even a Zoom meeting, just go ahead and do that and take the time because it could save you personally, but more importantly, it could save your entire organization from having to do uh, incident response because you clicked on something or opened an attachment and then a um, and an infection started from your machine and then permeated through the rest of the organization. Right. Yeah. I, I feel like if people just devoted more of their time into sifting through these practices, they could definitely help, especially secure the organization from an individual user standpoint. And that should be a key or critical focus. If I can add one more thing, which is, you know, phishing via email is, is common, but we, we're also seeing um, a rise in uh, the amount of robocalls and, and phishing, basically vishing uh, via voice messages. But the other connected to this, at least in, in my mind, is uh, text uh, message-based phishing, where they send you a text message that has a link. And the danger of responding to this on our phones, you know, we're on our phones the whole time and it's it's a small window and we see something and it's got a link and before we know it, our finger has touched the phone, it clicked the link and we might have inadvertently opened the door for an attacker into those devices. Right. We've received quite a few SMS phishing notices or tickets from students, staff and faculty members um, over the past few weeks. And they've definitely risen in the number and frequency we've received them. One of the things I like to do with my phone, for example, is to make sure that if I'm expecting some kind of message from that person or that entity, that I save them in the contacts and that I put a name. And I think even uh, Google lately with Android is doing something to try to reduce um, both spam calls uh, and so if you have a number saved in your contacts, then it's more likely to let it through and recognize it as legitimate rather than some kind of random number that you've never really received a text from before uh, that's asking you to click on a link. Yeah, I know Google definitely has a few tricks up its sleeve that it's rolling out, especially with new updates to its AI assistance 
whereby there, you know, uh, you can even have the Google Assistant make phone calls for you to verify people's identity or even generate responses, you know, to figure out who the caller is or who the person sending the text is. So they're doing a good job on their end as well. And now moving on to the second P of protection that we talk about, patching. For most of the audience or the listeners out there, patching is essentially just updating your software and firmware on a timely basis. And typically, whenever you have a security update that gets rolled out, a lot of people, especially at their workplaces, what we've noticed is they tend to put it off until they can close all their tabs and close all their applications and then finally get to it and download it. But from at least what I know, some of the updates, they address key vulnerabilities and critical issues. And um, you, you can resolve a lot of problems and, and potential risks if you, you patch your systems or you update your systems on a frequent basis. Do you have any thoughts or any more to add on that, Raj? Um, yeah, we do have documentations on how to update your systems. There's a guides on the mnsu.edu website. If you just go search up um, KCS articles, KCS stands for Knowledge Center Service. And uh, if you click on the first link that shows up in the MNSU website, it leads you to the KCS website and you can search for system updates and basically how to update uh, the Windows systems for Windows 10 or for Mac, so that you're safe from, you know, any kind of threat. Right. So we have a bunch of guides that are available, you know, as part of, of our resources that we offer. And me and Raj personally have worked on these articles to make it more user friendly so that it can touch more of the user base that we have on campus and even off campus the general public. Uh, do you have any thoughts, Dr. Velsos, on patching specifically and how patching can save an organization, even systems? Well, other than being vigilant about incoming uh, phone calls, emails, or text messages, patching is really the, the second best thing that uh, users, uh, members of the organization, students, faculty members can do to help protect themselves, to help protect the data that, 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 ha- that they have on their laptops or their desktops, and frankly, help protect their organization. Um, so in, in the case of MSU for faculty and staff, uh, most of the time the patching happens automatically because it's handled by ITS. But in the case of students, it's important that you take the time to let your machine do the update. Um, you may want to go in and configure when is a, an appropriate time for the updates to happen. Uh, usually most operating systems have uh, something that they consider the workday and they'll try not to disrupt you and, and do that patching during the workday. Um, but it's important to let the machines do this. It is. It can be. Um, it can be uh, frustrating to have to give up some uh, useful work time to let a system install updates and reboot. Uh, but it can uh, truly help protect you uh, from any kind of malware, any kind of strange thing that you can um, that you can just encounter in the course of your normal go, going about your day and, and running your normal uh, op- procedures for your business. Um, one of the things that, that occurs to me with this remote uh, working, this working from home is, you know, you want to make sure that you keep this patching and then you remember to do backups. 
Uh, one of the reasons for doing backups is just in case something happens to your primary system so that you have you don't end up losing the data and um, you're able to try to recover as quickly as possible. But connected to remote uh, working and working from home as well is if you do get some help or if you do help somebody else by remotely um, uh, connecting to their systems or if your organization allows remote desktop, just try to remove that uh, that capability when you no longer use it. So um, if you help somebody via something like a log me in or some kind of remote desktop type tool, uh, once you're done helping that person, just make sure that this uh, this tool is no longer there or that it's no longer active until the next time that you absolutely need it. Yeah, and also to add on that uh, for faculty who remote connect to their desktop that's on campus, it's kind of also important to update that specific uh, device that they're connecting remotely into so that they have all of their devices updated at the same time. That was one of the prime issues that we needed to address at, um, at IT security was where we just deployed a new system called Remote Labs that was in partnership with an organization called LabStack. And uh, we essentially wanted to give students that don't have availability to, um, you know, desktop performance uh, computing to remotely connect. But we also needed to, because we, we needed to make things available quickly and in a timely fashion to ensure that these remote connections being made complied to our policies and procedures and that they're being done in a very secure manner. So remote connection, especially during the current situation that we're facing, is a key um, thing to focus on, and both from from defense and uh, I know even the attackers target that constantly. So we definitely need to be vigilant about uh, remote connections and, and systems um, that are connected remotely. And if and if students are um, working for an external employer and their employer has opened remote desktop to the whole internet, um, uh, remote desktop, RDP, remote desktop protocol. Um, if, if that's open to the whole internet, um, make sure to have a conversation with the IT side uh, so that there's either two-factor authentication or some additional layers of protection that are built in, or at the very least, some a lot more active monitoring of these incoming connections. One of the things that we've seen just in the past month or so of so many uh, people in organizations working remotely is um, a, a whole uh, number of attacks uh, trying to brute force into remote desktop systems. So if you have uh, poor password hygiene in terms of your administration or even some of your valid remote users with uh, uh, easy to guess or already published usernames and then easy to guess or simply bad passwords, it's likely those systems are going to be taken over because now anybody can can basically walk virtually into your organization and try all the door handles, try to jiggle the door handles and, until they find one that's open. Dr. V, from your perspective, what are some of the industry security measures that can be taken so that the, the remote connection is secure? So this is not new to, you know, 2020, but for at least a decade, some of the best practices in terms of uh, telework and work from home have always been to wrap remote desktop in, inside of another more secure layer 
such as requiring the users to be on a VPN before their remote desktop. Now, I know that at MSU Mankato, that's not the, the choice that we have right now, but I know that we have additional, in a way, countermeasures and additional monitoring going on to help balance out that additional risk. But any organization out there, if you have remote desktop open to the internet, you're basically signaling to an attacker that, you know, come and, and I'm right here as a target. Um, and they're, they're at the very least going to try to rattle the doorknobs and see how challenging the username password might be to see if um, they have, for example, uh, a limited number of invalid attempts and then they're being paused or delayed or simply kicked out, the connection being closed. So uh, that's one of the primary things that organization can do right now is to not have remote desktop. Uh, visible to the internet. And if it has to be accessible, then to wrap that up into another protocol. And connected to this, of course, is patching because the moment these systems are visible on the internet, if a system has an IP address that's visible on the internet, it's going to be taking a beating because people will be trying to scan this and trying to use older exploits to to get an easy foothold into your systems and eventually into your, your networks. Right. And talking a bit more on uh, securing the, the remote connection, what do you think are some of the methods that people at home can do to, uh, to decrease the vulnerabilities in their home networks? So, you know, like open DNS or their firewall settings could be a plausible uh, approach, I feel. Do you have any more thoughts on that? Or? Absolutely. So first of all, um, yes, if you know enough about OpenDNS, and hopefully you guys will add those in the show notes, uh, links to those kinds of uh, tools, uh, definitely run some kind of tool in addition to your standard antivirus and your standard host-based firewall. Um, OpenDNS allows basically your machine or your entire home network to block what are known bad IP addresses. So if you clicked on something that was a, a strange IP address or it was kind of a strange or a, a, almost like a clone of a regular website of regular URL name, but perhaps it was misspelled or perhaps it used some kind of fancy ASCII code to kind of trick your eye, but your machine knew better, uh, the OpenDNS can end up catching this or simply refusing to connect to it, which would be quite useful. But even before you go with OpenDNS, uh, in my opinion, is go into your router settings and double check to see that your router is as up to date as can be. And frankly, if you bought your router more than two, three years ago, and there has, hasn't been an update in the past 12 months, it's probably time for you to go get a, a newer router. Uh, for one thing, you're going to probably get a speed improvement or stability improvement. And secondly, you'll get regular updates from that manufacturer. Right. And yeah, I, I know that configuring your, your, your firewall is one of the primary steps that you can take to really make sure your internet connection is, is more secure and your connection to the network in general. One of the questions that I was taking a look at that was being asked was, what are some of the you know easy, easy to adapt uh, or adopt security skills that a person could learn while in isolation. What are your thoughts on that, Dr. Velsos? Easy to do security skills. I'm not sure that there's easy to do while in isolation. One of the things that I have seen though is I've seen many organizations, uh, training organizations or uh, organizations that otherwise have uh, 
come up with cybersecurity knowledge or cybersecurity training, or even in some cases, cybersecurity credentials, I have seen many of those organizations actually put some of their material online for free for people to, uh, to browse and to learn from. So uh, follow some kind of uh, reputable thread or perhaps um, do a, a search. You have to be careful what you search for because sometimes the search results are poisoned, but see if you find um, something like this. So uh, hopefully MSU might be uh, putting some more information, some more material there. But if, if you want to learn more um, about some domain related to IT or cybersecurity, there are just in the past uh, month or two, there have been a number of organizations that have put that material out there. Right. I know at this point in time, there are a lot of organizations that are offering a lot of cybersecurity training and, and even tools at a very discounted rate. Uh, even uh, prices for, for taking certifications has dropped uh, quite considerably in the past few weeks just because of, you know, to help people with the quarantine, to help them learn some skills while they're spending their time, you know, in quarantine and isolation. Yeah, and we also try to update our um, cybersecurity website. That's mnsu.edu slash cyberware with all the latest articles on, you know, cybersecurity news so that you're up to date with whatever's happening. Right. Uh, we've been trying to constantly engage with our, our user base and we've, we've been doing a a good job at, at really putting out new and relevant content uh, as and when they, they become, uh, you know, when we get information of them um, so that our students and, and faculty and even staff are all uh, aware of the security trends and, and that they're mindful in general. Because if the more people, the more the general user base is aware, the, the less, um, you know, security issues that we face as an organization. Another great topic, and this is um, a little just moving aside from from patching and even phishing, is the uh, issue of Zoom bombing. And I know that from a university perspective, with uh, at least for our internal uh, conversations, I know we're using Zoom currently as a platform. What one of the things that we've been tasked to do is for any correspondences through Zoom, we've been asked to have a unique ID and have a meeting password. Um, do you are you aware of Zoom bombing from what you've seen, Doctor Falsos? Well, luckily enough, I haven't um, had to experience it. Um, I, I am aware of it, and I've seen uh, reports in the news of uh, people experiencing this, um, including in in some K through twelve school uh, systems in some of their classes. One of the things that happened is as everybody quickly adapted and adjusted to doing more things online, they really weren't thinking about um, how easy is it for somebody to basically take a, a number that, so a URL that has a number and that number corresponds to a Zoom meeting ID and simply increment that by one and just see if it lands, my, if it lands an attacker in a meeting. So the good news is the, the organization here, MSU Mankato, We've taken steps in collaboration with the Minnesota State uh, System and Zoom themselves to uh, make the default settings of Zoom uh, a lot more secure than they were even just two weeks ago. Um, but it's also up to everybody else whenever you're setting up a Zoom meeting to, um, as, as you mentioned, Sherwin, 
just uh, make sure that you create a new uh, meeting ID and then try to password protect that. Even if it's a very simple password, uh, it's gonna be enough to just keep the riffraff away and instead uh, only the uh, legitimate and authorized users will be able to, uh, to get in because they'll know what the meeting is about. So it could be somebody's name, it could be the sky is blue. Well, hopefully not everybody uses the sky is blue, but even a simple, um, a simple password can be enough to help uh, protect the, the the communication that you're going to have in this Zoom meeting. So now there are also some reports of Zoom having some more severe security issues um, that lets a much more advanced uh, level of attacker uh, try to pierce through something that uh, should be very well protected where not only is the Zoom meeting ID private and nobody else, it hasn't been posted on the internet uh, and not only is it protected with a password, but um, in theory, nobody else should be able to get into uh, some of these Zoom meetings. The good news is Zoom is aware of these. Um, it's been reported and they're working on addressing these kinds of uh, holes and plugging those holes so that the uh, Zoom communications will be more secure. And by the way, this is true of any other uh, pretty much remote uh, work, uh, whether it's audio or audio and video type environment. Um, you have to be aware of when something is recorded, for example. You have to be aware of um, how likely it might be that other people that shouldn't have that link somehow got that link. Um, and just in general, be careful about what you say and be aware, situational awareness. In this case, it's not necessarily about what's going on in the room next to you, but it's what's going on on your computer and on the software that you're using, such as the, uh, the video conferencing software. Right. Some key steps will definitely help um, prevent people who are not supposed to be in the meeting or eavesdropping on the conversations from, you know, to being out of those of the virtual meeting. We have one last question that we'd like to ask. So um, we, we know that you're a faculty member and you, you teach hands-on security in your IT450, uh, uh, your, your security warfare class. Um, how has teaching this class been affected by virtual learning, Dr. Bessels? Well, thank you for asking that question. Um, in in the, the spring semester, spring 2020, um, I had one of my three classes that was already online and that one was able to continue online. And the other two had to be uh, changed fairly quickly to be brought online. Uh, a, a course such as the uh, IT450 Information Warfare course that has uh, something like 12 labs and each of these labs are very much hands-on uh, there's, there's interaction that normally happens within the classroom, within the table. There's basically table leaders that are uh, helping the rest of their classmates. And then I'm kind of a mentor and coach and uh, run around the room in some cases, um, helping uh, people figure out uh, troubleshoot where, where it is uh, that they're having some issues. So it's been a lot more challenging. Um, we're only, as we're recording this, I've only had one week of moving from face-to-face -to, -face to the online uh, interactions. So far, so good. Uh, one of the things that, that I've done a little bit differently is to encourage students to, um, to step up, step forward, basically, 
and present to their peers some of their work and to do so in such a way that uh, without giving away all the answers. And uh, much like uh, I could ask some of the better students in the classroom to step up and present. And again, uh, be mindful about not giving away all the answers, but more of the how to, how did I get there? And then what kind of hurdles did they have to overcome? Um, I've been able to ask some of the, uh, some of the good students to do the same thing in virtual means. But there's definitely some adjusting that's happening both on my side and on the student side. And, um, you know, as, uh, as part of the MSU faculty group, I can tell you that there's been a number of conversations from the with the administration or from the administration and with the deans as well, making sure that we faculty are uh, cognizant of this huge amount of disruption that's happening in, in everybody's lives. Uh, and that we try to uh, to be at the very least understanding of the situation that students are going through. Right. I, I know even, uh, and I'm speaking on my behalf, and I'm sure Raj can chime in or even associate to this. There's been definitely quite a hurdle, uh, especially from the students' perspective, to transitioning to online classes, especially since the classes weren't designed or structured that way right from the start. And uh, coming back to the classroom setting after what it felt like almost a month of, of spring break, uh, with the with the you know with the classes being suspended and uh, uh, you know we were having to take time to uh, you know especially give you guys uh, the faculty members time to to restructure the schedule. It feels very um, very confusing and 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 perplexing to to try to settle down um, and really uh, book it towards the end of the semester. But I, I think, I, I, and I'm hoping students, um, you know, can get all the assistance that they can get to to try and finish strong, especially for, for those graduating this um, semester, like myself. We're, we're all in this together. All right, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Velsos for, for your time and for for joining us today for you know for debuting this cyberware podcast series and hopefully you and your family are doing well during this this situation and both you and as well as all your students and the other faculty members are also doing well thank you um thank you for having me and and i hope everybody stays safe both physically uh mentally and also on their technology <laughs>